Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. There is good and evil in this world, and I know you've seen it. You're going to become a dirty politician. There's a bunch of guys that did the same types of jobs that we used to do that are recognizing how much trouble we're in. And they're like, okay, foreign and domestic, I'll go. If you talk like that, you, you get killed. You yeah. can be thrown into prison. You have two choices. You surrender or you're dead. I know some people have different answers for where that comes from. But I think, I think it's spiritual, man. If and when you become a congressman, what are you gonna do when that big suitcase full of money is staring at you right in the face? What's going down? We got another phenomenal SRS episode coming at you. This one is a former SEAL sniper running for Congress in Arizona. We dive deep, as always. And the second half of this episode is actually on Rumble. I don't make the rules. I can't control it. It's not friendly on this platform. So it's over on Rumble. You can go down to the link in the description and uh, head over there after this interview if you want to watch that portion. If not, that's fine too. But I do have an ask. I've said it before, guys, it, it really is getting harder and harder to reach the audience on this platform. So what helps is when you like, comment, subscribe, turn the notification bell to all. Hopefully you get notified. If you don't, there's not really much else I can do. But here is the good news. Here, There is good news. The gummy bear famine is now over. So... Head over to VigilanceElite.com. Get your hands on some while they last, because they never last long. But, hey, thank you all for being here. Love you guys. My family loves you guys. And uh, if you need me, I'll be out here in the woods hiding out from everybody else. All right. Love you. Enjoy the show. Bye-bye. Eli Crane, welcome to the show, man. So you are a Navy SEAL sniper, entrepreneur, bottle breacher company, one on Shark Tank, and now you're going into Congress. You're you're running for Congress in Arizona. Yep. What? I mean, you're going to become a dirty politician. <laughs> <laughs> I know, man. Just um, having people even say that, um, it's it's hard to even hear. You yeah, know, politician, because there's such negative connotation with it, and yeah. for good reason. 
Well, you know, I I listened to a couple of your podcasts and I heard you say on one that when you were going into the SEAL teams that you you had to stand up for the country. Yep. It was after 9-11. And when you said it, you made it sound like you were never going to have to do that again. And now here you are again, standing up for the country, doing something that I don't think you really want to do. You're doing it for the betterment of the country, and and uh, and uh, that's very commendable. Yeah, it's politics is never something that I wanted to do, and it doesn't mean that I I haven't been interested in it because I've always found it fascinating. But actually, getting in that arena is something that I never wanted to do. Yeah. That's I think that's the biggest difference when I look at because I see a lot of similarities um, when I look at joining the Navy the week after 9-11 in, in wanting to serve in that capacity. I see a lot of similarities between right now wanting to run for office. But, you know, that's definitely one of the biggest differences is that I always wanted, I wanted to be a SEAL for a very long time. And I worked very hard to get, get there. Um, this is something that I really never wanted to do, never planned to do. But I'm just so concerned about this country right now that um, you can't complain about it if you're not willing to do something about it, right? Yeah. Well, I got to be honest, you know, you seem a lot different than most of the politicians that I've met. Most of the politicians have, they have like a little peppy attitude and, 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 and it's almost like an elevator sales pitch. And you're very calm, collected, to the point. I don't think you really care what people think. Uh, you're just gonna say it how it is. And and uh, I gotta be honest, like that's really refreshing to see, especially at dinner last night when we were talking about all these different things. But before you do go into office, I wanted to give you a little present here. And uh, oh boy, better be some damn gummy bears in here. I heard yeah. about the gummy bears. I mean, if you do get elected, maybe you can pass those out over there in Congress and lighten some of these assholes up. Are these as good as Harboro gummy bears? They're better. They're better than Harboro? Try them. Oh, my goodness. And you got me I something. Do, I do like some gummy bears. Thank you, man. That's an awesome cap. Awesome. That is awesome. Thank you, Sean. You're welcome. And then you got me something from your company, Bottle Breacher, so. That's right. We call that the Moab, the mother of all breachers. Oh, damn. It's a 30 millimeter bottle breacher. That's serious. It is serious, man. So the case is real. Um, it once fired, and then the projectile has to, we, had to, we have to machine those. You can't you can't get those. This was fired. The the case nice. was. It's once fired brass. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I'm gonna have you sign this, and it's gonna go right over there on the set. So awesome, dude. This is cool. Thank you. But well, want to get right into the interview. But before we do, uh, I just want to say you know we'll start with childhood. I want to talk a lot about your sniper career 
uh, because we haven't talked about that with any other Spec Ops guest on here. So I'd really like to dig into that, get into your transition, how you became an entrepreneur, and then we'll get into the dirty politics. And uh, so how I want to do it is we'll take break whenever we want. When we hit the dirty politics, uh, that this show is going over to Rumble. So you want to talk about some things, not everything's YouTube friendly. And so I'm linking the Rumble description below. So when we get to that point, if you want to listen to the politics and uh, your opinions and views and how how you think we should uh, be going as, uh, in the how we should take the country in a new direction, um, that will all be over on Rumble. So, but let's start with childhood. Where'd you grow up? I actually was born in Tucson, Arizona, and I was raised in Yuma, Arizona. In Yuma? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my dad moved us down there. He was a pharmacist, and uh, he went to pharmacy school at the University of Arizona in Tucson and then moved the family down to Yuma because there were some good job openings down there. And so it ended up being, uh, you know, an interesting place to grow up because it's in the desert. It's one of the hottest places in the country. I think what, looking back on my life to this point, I think one of the things that made it funny was, you know, I spent, I did three tours in Iraq and a lot of my buddies were always complaining about the heat. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like being from Yuma, you know, with Arabic street signs. So, um, and, you know, Yuma has some of the best Mexican food in the world. You know, uh, we've got sand dunes right outside of Yuma. Um, once you cross right into California, because Yuma's right on the California border. But like, if you like to, you know, off-road or, you know, go to the lake, Yuma's a pretty cool place. Really? Yeah. What'd you like to do as a kid? You know, I love to play football. I love playing sports. Football was my passion. And uh, yeah, I also loved to shoot when I got the opportunity to shoot. I was just, you know, fascinated with, um, you know, hunting with my BB gun, my pellet rifle, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Good family life. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. Um, you know, until right around the time I was about 17, and then my family was pretty much blown up. Um, but yeah, you know, I consider myself lucky to have had both my parents until I was 17. So, do you want to go into that at all, or I don't mind going into it at all? What happened at 17? Um, my parents got divorced. Um, you know, there was uh, some infidelity in the home, and. Uh, you know, my parents decided to split. And uh, <clears throat> in a way, uh, in a way, I'm grateful for it because I got to see, you know, firsthand what what that can do to a family. And um, I think a lot of times stuff like that can be generational. And um, so it was it was good for me because in in ways because. I wanted to make sure that that was never something I brought into my family yeah. and to protect, protect my family because I saw the, I saw the fallout. I saw the aftermath of it. Um, and I never wanted my kids to experience that. And it doesn't stuff like that. When a family, you know, gets destroyed like that, it doesn't just affect, you know, the, 
the people directly involved. I mean, it has collateral damage throughout friend groups and, you know, all sorts of things. And so in a way, I'm glad I got to experience that and just the pain and the hurt that comes with it so that I can, you know, rem- remember how it felt and make sure that I never do anything like that. Wow. Did, did you have uh, any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got uh, two brothers. I've got an older brother uh, named Zach. He's a uh, chemist in Colorado. And then my younger brother, Gabe, he's uh, he's a lawyer now, but he was, um, and I think he's still in the Marine Reserves, but he was a Cobra pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah, graduated from the Naval Academy. It's kind of cool. Um, he's two years younger than me, but it's kind of cool, man. For, you know, for a good, for a good while there, my little brother kind of became my hero because, you know, I remember growing up and wanting to play football and, um, Hey guys, we all love our freedoms. One of the most important freedoms is financial freedom and freedom from debt. High interest credit card debt can make you feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That's where Upstart comes in. Upstart powered personal loans can help you pay down high interest debt all online with simple and easy to understand payment terms. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, Upstart can help you get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. You can also check your rate in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score. Don't wait. Check your rate today at upstart.com slash Sean. That's upstart.com slash Sean to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based off your credit score, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash Sean. Life is hard enough as it is, so people that make life easier really tend to stand out. For example, my friend Adam. Guy is an IT website genius. Anytime I have any issues with website or IT stuff, Adam is always there with the answer and to guide me through whatever process I need. It's like if you own a growing business and need to hire. ZipRecruiter makes hiring so much easier because they do the work for you. And right now, you can try it for free. It's ZipRecruiter.com SRS. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidate up with your job. ZipRecruiter also has a complete suite of tools that make it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates. In fact, the hardest thing you have to do is to remember our special URL, ZipRecruiter.com SRS. That's where you go to try ZipRecruiter for free. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com SRS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I have some pretty amazing guests on my show and they have some serious history. So when I'm doing my research on them, I need to dive deep into some background searches and some of it is pretty discreet stuff. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you, incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you keep clearing your browser history. Your internet provider can still see every single website you have ever visited. That's why 
Even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information obscure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. And most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, so it's easy to use. You just tap one button and you're protected. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by the Business Insider. And you can get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Sean. Expressvpn.com slash Sean to learn more. When I, when I started to realize that probably wasn't going to happen, that I didn't have... Uh the necessary skill to, to make it as far as I wanted to go. It was really cool watching him because I, you know, being his older brother, I'd always give him a hard time. Like he would, you know, he would in high school, he would go into his room and he would just like study flashcards, you know, and he'd study, you know, he'd study SAT books and you know how to get his SAT scores up. And I'd give him a hard time and be like, dude, Let's go, let's go, let's go throw the football or something. <laughs> and he was, uh, you know, but he were, he was really diligent with it. And then um, I had, you know, was just graduating from high school and he was taking a lot of these entry tests and applying for scholarships. And he got into West Point, the Naval Academy um, and the Air Force Academy. Wow. I mean, just, and, and it was, what, what was cool is like, you know the deal, Sean, you see, people on television or whatever and they're you see them you watch we all love to watch a success story right i think that's why people love the shark tank so much they want to root for the underdog underdog they want to see how it's how somebody can you know go from nothing to something and it was just cool because i got to watch my little brother do it right in front of me and i got to watch the process too not really being able to connect the dots on hey will this ever amount to anything or could we have just been hanging out playing and, you know, running around the neighborhood? And uh, it was really cool to watch him be successful like that because it really opened my eyes to what, you know, what was possible if you applied yourself. Damn, that's, is he helping with your campaign at all, being an attorney or? You know what, he's not, but we have had some, we have had some discussions about that because I know that, you know, if I get, um, the opportunity to go serve in Congress. I know that there will be a lot of legalese, a lot of documents that I have to, you know, look through. And having somebody that speaks that language and reads that language, and somebody that you trust, yeah, that that's going to be huge. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, at what point did you? I mean, seventeen—that's late, you know, in your in your childhood. Yeah, and uh, basically early adulthood. What? At what point did you? decide you wanted to be a SEAL? So it was right after that time period. I was, I think I was 18, 19-ish, right around that time frame. I knew, I knew that I wanted to be in the military. Um, you know, my parents had done a pretty good job, I think, raising us to understand that, you know, freedom isn't free, even though that's cliche and it gets said all the time they would point, we grew up in Yuma. There was a uh, Marine Corps air station in Yuma. And I remember them pointing out Marines at our church and even service members all the time and being like, Hey, those guys do some, 
those guys do something that's way bigger than themselves. You know, sh make sure you show them respect. And that was something that always registered with me. And that there were people that once they became adults, their focus wasn't merely making money or providing for their families, healthcare, insurance, etc. There were people out there that devoted their lives to something, a service that was so much bigger than them. And that was something that, you know, always resonated with me. And so I thought to myself, that might be something that I want to do when I get older. And so as I was, as I was getting through school and realized I didn't have what it took to play football at the levels that I wanted to play, um, I started doing a lot of reading and a lot of studying. Okay, if I'm, if I'm going to make this decision, if I'm going to go into the military, what route do I want to go? Because I knew there were a bunch of jobs that you could do. And the special forces community to me was very attractive. Yeah. One of my favorite authors is a guy named John Eldridge, and he writes this book. It's called Wild at Heart. And he talks about, and it's a faith-based book, but he talks about how the biggest question that every young man has is, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be a man? Do I have what it takes to be a warrior? Do I have what it takes to be a good husband? Do I have what it takes to be a good father? And we're always asking, we've always got that question. And so this was long before I ever read that book, but that was definitely a question that I had. And you might've had the same question yourself. I definitely have. Did I, I have, do I have what it takes to, to hang with the best? Do I have what it takes to make it through the toughest training in the Department of Defense? And initially the answer was no. Really? Yeah. I didn't make it through SEAL training on my first try. What, before we go into that, um, what drew you into the SEALs specifically versus Green Berets or Marine Reconnaissance, PJs? So the research that I was doing said that it was the hardest in DOD, almost, almost across the board, said it was the toughest training in the Department of Defense. And the other thing too was I, I loved the water. Like I loved swimming. Um, or at least I thought I did. <laughs> right? Yeah. Until I got to, you know, SEAL training where they actually use the water. They weaponize it against you to try and break you. And um, so those were a couple reasons right there. But then as I was researching and looking through, even though the SEALs were considered to be the water specialists, according to the lit literature I was reading, they still did everything that everybody else did as well. And as you get, as you go through that pipeline and then you start working with other groups, you realize that yes, certain groups have certain specialties, but I just thought it had a really good variety. And my dad gave me a piece of advice when I was in high school. He said, Eli, the trick to being happy in your career is to pick something in life that you would basically do for free. He, he wanted to make sure that I didn't chase something because of money or security. 
And I think that was something that he did, and he wanted to make sure that his son didn't do it. And, um, and I'm glad that he did because I think that's why a lot of, I think that's why a lot of individuals have midlife crisis because once they get halfway through their life, they realize that we only go around one time and life is short. And if you're not living a purpose-driven life, if there's not more to your life than just paying the bills. And I'm not knocking anybody for doing that because some of the biggest sacrifice, some of the biggest sacrifices I've ever seen are men and women who work a monotonous job that they don't like to provide for their family. And I think that that's fantastic. But I think that you can do, I think you can do that and live a purpose-driven life and where there's a mission outside of that's greater than those things. I think you're absolutely right. I, I've seen a lot of that with um, when I used to train people. You, I would get a lot of these gents that would come in and they'd be in their 50s, late 40s to early 60s. And it's it's like they were making up for lost time. Right. You know, they were, they were, it's almost like there becomes, and this isn't everybody, you know what I mean? But there becomes like this fantasy of what it would have been like if they had done X, Y, or Z. And in my, in my instance, what I was seeing was what would it have been like if I would have, if I would have been a SEAL. And, uh, and a lot of that was guys that chased the dollar that became extremely wealthy and, and what I've noticed with people that become extremely wealthy is it just, it's like this never ending beast that you're just feeding, you know, yep. and it's, there's never, it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. And then they figure out this is about experiencing things, not money. 100%. You know, so, man, I'm glad you said that. Cause I've never actually put that into words like you just did, but yeah. Interesting. No, it is. I noticed, you know, I noticed that too. Um, so I be it, after failing and then coming back and I became a seal at 25 and then I made my first million dollars at 35. And by all accounts, people looking from the outside would be like, Oh man, this guy's got it figured out, man. He's, he, he's crushing it. He's, but to your point, it's true. I mean, there, it doesn't, I've been poor and I've been wealthy. I'll take wealthy any day, but it, it, in my opinion, it doesn't fulfill you. Um, and I think that's why you see so many celebrities that they get to this or pro athletes or whatever it is that you put on a pedestal, they get to this level and we all think, oh, they've arrived. Right. And then they have problems with addiction. Often you'll see suicide. And a lot of it, in my opinion, is, is because when you get to the top or whatever, whatever that level is for you or whatever you want to achieve and you realize you're still the same human being, you still have the same flaws, you still have the same fears, the same, the same anxieties that you did before. Even now, a lot of times they're elevated because it's a lot further fall from the top, right? And, you know, that's why my faith is everything to me, because 
it's not something that the world can take from me ever. And, um, but yeah, it's just been interesting to be able to experience some of those things and see that, you know, uh, you know, King Solomon talks about it in the, you know, book of Proverbs, how it's all, um, how it's all a waste of time, you know, how it's all vanity. It's all, it's, it's all a waste of time. And it's, um, and I know that that probably sounds depressing to a lot of people out there that are chasing it. And I think most of us were the type where we need to, we're like, well, that's great, Eli, but I'll figure that one out on my own. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep chasing this <laughs> and, and do chase it. I think that, I think that you should experience it for yourself. Um, but there are so many things big, that are, you know, bigger in life than, you know, title and money. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I know I'm really not worried about. People ask me all the time. They're like, so let's say you become a, a congressman. What makes you think you're not going to be like everybody else? I've seen a lot of things that a lot of people haven't. I've experienced a lot of things that a lot of people haven't. And I know where it leads. And so this isn't, this isn't about another feather in my cap. It's about, once again, service. And it's, once again, this country's in trouble. And it needs the next generation to step up and say, I'll go. I may not be perfect. Far from it. I don't have all the answers, but I'll go. Man, that's refreshing to hear. Very, ref all of it. For where you're going, you know, that's it's like I was saying at the beginning of this, when you, when I talk to politicians, they're always, it's, it it's just the, never it's, seems it's, genuine. It's, it's theater. Yeah. It's theater. It's put on, put on the blue suit with the white shirt and the red tie, get the American pin flag. And this is the approved narrative. This is what you can talk about. And people are sick of it. They really are. It's one of the only reasons I think that a guy like me can even run in, in today's world because people are just like, well, he might not he might not say the politically correct things. He may not look like a politician, but I think he's telling me where he's really at. Yeah, you know, and it's like it's sad. It's sad that it's taken the current events that we we've been experienced to get to this place, but I am grateful to see that it's not just me. There's a bunch of guys that did the same types of jobs that we used to do that are recognizing how much trouble we're in. And they're like, okay, foreign and domestic, I'll go, I'll go. I can't, can't do much worse than the people there now, right? No. So. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, so you you went, you joined, you went to Bud's, you didn't make it the first time. What happened? Reality happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's the toughest training in the world. And I was immature and I I wasn't well prepared. And because I didn't do what I needed to do to be prepared. And so, uh, it, you know, it was interesting, man. I, I actually made it through Hell Week, um, which 
I would say the majority of team guys would tell you is the hardest part of training. Some will say it's not. It, I guess it just depends on how you look at it. But I made it through that week, and then about a week and a half later, I was performance dropped from training. Really? Yep. What, and then what I, was it? What was what? Was it the runs or was it? It was a combination. I'd failed life-saving three times. Oh. And then um, they, I went to an academic review board, and they were like, look, we know you're tough. You made it through hell week, but we need the best of the best here, and you're not measuring up. They were like, you failed to run, you failed to swim, you failed an obstacle course, and you're ranked in the bottom 25% of your class. Damn. Yeah. Which is... I mean, it's like, um, that, you know, that's hard. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard, but it's how SEAL training is designed. It's good. And I deserved it. And w one of the biggest reasons I, I believe I was ranked in the bottom 25% of my class was because I was immature and I wasn't like, if there was a job to be, you know, it's it, it buds. It's not just a hey, time runs, time swims, and o, o courses. It's like, hey, we need that office cleaned over there. Who, you know, after hours, once once the training day is done, who who wants to get it? You know, my hand wasn't flying up in the air like, hey, I got it, I'm on it. And it was just my my attitude was more self preservation than being a team guy and taking one for the team. And I think a lot of the times that comes with maturity. And I lacked it. And so I, I absolutely deserve to go away. And I'm glad that they, they keep the standards. And I hope they always do. I hope they keep those standards high. Yeah. Well, how old were you? I was 20, 22. 22? Yep. Where'd you go afterwards? I went to the USS Gettysburg in Mayport, Florida. We called it the USS Regrettysburg. But... <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might get you, dude. Oh man, but what were you doing there? I was a gunner's mate, so um, you know, like worked in the armory, um, worked on the ship small arms, and uh, I did a lot of sweeping. I did a lot of brass polishing, a lot of cleaning, and it was good. It was good for me because I needed to grow up. I needed, you know, I needed that. A, an extra dose of tough love you know i've never talked to anybody on this about fleet time really so let's talk a little bit about okay. fleet time how long were you in there so they recommended that i come back in a year the the seal instructors but um if if the co from the ship let me go then he wouldn't get a replacement for me so they were like no we're not letting you go um, early. And so I did two and a half years on board the ship, did two cruises on the ship. And, um, you know, it's just, it's interesting to me and my hat is off to the men and women in our Navy that do that job for 20 years, because it's not an easy life, man. It's not like to me and guys like us, it's kind of like being on a floating prison. It really is. I mean, think of a 450-foot boat with 400-plus people on it. Um, you work 
if you're underway, typically, you work from Reveille's at like six in the morning. Your day will start at seven after chow. You'll go to probably five in the afternoon at least, working your day job. And then you'll stand a night watch every night. Every night. Every night. So you'll stand either the eight to midnight, the midnight to four, or the four to eight every night. And there's no there's no like days off on Saturday or Sunday. You're always underway. Like it's it's just constant. And so like when you're out for a month at a time, which is which was very routine for us. I mean, you you're working a month straight that schedule, and it it gets to the point where people get burnt out. No, yeah. and it's not like the teams where your reputation is based on uh, performance per se. It's conventional military. So you don't get... In the SEAL teams, you get treated very well. Yeah. In the, in conventional military, you know, it's a, it's a, it's completely different. So it's to the point where they, you know, at times we'll have to have uh, like an aft watch that sits at the back of the ship and looks over the back of the ship, you know, for, you know, other vessels but also for people that will just jump over the side. Did you guys ever have that happen? No, we never did, but it did. It happened on other ships. It never happened on our ship, but it, it does happen. Damn, that's like watching water boil. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a wild life, man. Did you get a lot of flack coming from buds? Was there a lot of animosity towards you a little bit and i think one of the biggest reasons is because guys that come from buds do not want to be in the fleet so we have you, you have an attitude a chip on your shoulder and i think that's the biggest thing and also i think there's like probably a little bit of a superiority complex that comes with it like hey guys i wanted to be a seal not do this not do this job so i think it we they're called buds duds, you know, so, or buds failures or whatever you want to say. But I think a lot of it is because of the attitude that buds duds show up to the fleet with. Hmm. And I think that that's where a lot of that comes from. And I, I struggled with that attitude as well. Um, I struggled to take ownership of my failure for a while. I remember showing up to the ship and my master chief was talking to me and um, and he, you know, looking back on it, he was just talking about, he was, I can't remember how the conversation went, but I remember getting defensive and, and talking about how I didn't deserve to be dropped because I'd made it through hell week and I never quit. And I still hadn't taken ownership of it yet. And I could tell as an older, wiser leader, like he, he knew that there that I, I, I needed to take some ownership of that, but I wasn't ready to take that ownership yet. And because I was immature. And I think that that's one of the greatest things that you can ever realize is that, hey, 90, 95% of the time in your life, 
you're where you deserve to be. Now that, now, and I want to preface that with everybody starts from different places, but once you've been given the opportunity, and that's what I love about America, you know, once you've been given the opportunity to go out and start working on things, we have, we have people in this country. I think I was sharing with you last night at dinner, a third of the millionaires in the United States every year weren't even born here. They're yeah. immigrants. Because they come here, they size up the landscape and the situation, and they say, you're telling me what I have to do is I have to work my tail off. I have to make really good decisions, and I just I have to sacrifice, and I just do that over and over and over again, and sooner or later I can, I can live in that house over there? Yeah. And, and the stats show it all the time. A third of the millionaires created in the U.S. every year are immigrants. And that's, that's to me, that's, that's what I love so much about this place is like if you're willing to take ownership of where you're at and where you want to go, and if you're less focused on where you start the race from, but just where's the finish line for you and how, how am I going to get there? You can you can live you know you you can live the American dream. You can be successful here. And it, it it was the same in it was the same in the teams. Now everybody can't go into the Navy or the military. I get that, right? But uh, you know that was just another experience for me um, where I realized that if you work your tail off. Um, and you're willing to take ownership and you're willing to sacrifice, you can do something great. I'm glad you said that. So you went back to Bud's. Yeah. After two and a half years, you got off the USS Regrettysburg. <laughs> yeah. How was it showing back up? You know, it was interesting because when I was there the first time, I was in E3. When I came back, I was in I believe I was an E4, maybe an E5. Yeah, I should know that. Yeah, I think I was an E5. I was an E5 when I came back. Um, so there was a little bit, little bit difference there in that you had more responsibility, but it was, it was scary for me because um, as a kid, I was diagnosed with uh, asthma or exercise-induced bronchitis. And so um, I was horrible at the runs, like, because my, my lungs, even after albuter, like an albuterol treatment, only function at like 60% of oh, wow. what, what they're supposed to for their size, right? And um, so like I was, every run, almost every run I passed, like I, I would come in right at, at the bubble, maybe maybe 10 seconds to spare, maybe more like usually like five. Like I remember how you'd hear them counting down on the beach, like yeah. five, four, three, and oh, damn. crane comes across the finish line. And usually I was dry heaving every time. But um, so the second time I came back, I caught pneumonia like right in first phase. And so I failed my first two runs in first phase. Oh, shit. And I was, so I was, they were like, hey, look, if you fail one more run, you're gone. 
So here I am. I had just signed orders to come back to SEAL training. Knowing that if I didn't make it through, I was going to have to go back out to the fleet for four more years. Be back on that floating prison. Knowing that I probably would. There, there was a decent chance if I couldn't get over this pneumonia, I wasn't even going to make it back to where I was the first time. So that, as you can imagine, created you know, just a lot, I mean, really, there was a lot of anxiety, and a lot of pressure, and a lot of fear, just dealing, just knowing that. Yeah. Damn, you failed the first two. How did you, how did you, uh, I mean, how'd you even get in with that? Did you lie on the medical exam? Or Well, so like I said, some doctors had said that I had asthma. Some doctors said I had exercise-induced bronchitis. So, um, I told them that I had exercise-induced bronchitis, but by the time I was older, like I could, I could pass the, the 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 Navy physical, you know, fitness test or whatever, with with decent scores. And so they're like, okay, yeah, you know, because they there there's there's a lot of kids that have like breathing issues or asthma when they're younger, and then as they get older, it kind of, you know, levels out quite a bit. And so. Um, you know, I, I definitely didn't play it up. I definitely downplayed it. Like, hey, this isn't this isn't a big deal at all. Yeah. But it was it was just something that I really wanted to do. And so, um, you know, I found a way to make it work. And the way I was able to make it work was by getting really light. Um, I walk around probably about usually around two hundred twenty pounds, but I got my weight down to like one seventy five, so that I could, you know just nimble yeah well just so i could my lungs could keep up with a smaller frame right yeah interesting yeah but you made it yeah i made it um and uh with um, buds class 256 and then i went uh immediately to seal team three did you, is that where you wanted to go was team three you know i wanted to go to the west coast i really I don't recall necessarily wanting to go to a certain team. I just wanted to be on the West Coast, if possible. Well, let's take a quick break real quick. I know you went to Chris Kyle's platoon, right? Yeah. So we'll talk about, we'll pick up right there when we come back. Cool. All right, Eli, so we're back from the break. You just showed up to SEAL Team 3. You're in Chris Kyle's platoon. Is he... Is he a chief at this point, or? So I'm not in Chris's platoon yet. Okay. So um, the very first thing we checked in and SEAL Team 3 was deployed. And so they they had like a command, like somebody, that, like a chief that was running stuff at back at the team. They had also checked in after the team was deployed. And so we would report to him every day. There were like five of us it went from my buds class to SEAL Team 3. And so we were just showing up to the team. We'd clean a little bit. And then, you know, they told us that they were going to try and send us to some schools while the team was gone. Um, and we wouldn't be joining them. And so I was like, oh, this is, this is good because um, my wife was living in Tucson. She'd just finished up. Uh, her degree at the U University of Arizona, where I had dropped out of to join the Navy years, years before that. And so I was like, oh, great, we can start our life together. And so I was like, why don't you move out here? 
And uh, so she moves out, and uh, I'm like, they're not going to send, they're not sending us on this deployment. We're just going to go to schools. This will be a good little, you know, uh, one of the more chill times, I think, while I'm doing this job. And sure enough, she moves out. Two weeks later, they're like, yeah, yeah, change of plans. <laughs> <laughs> you're going you're going to you're going to deploy you're going to go overseas and j- join up with you know one of the deployed uh task units over there and so they had to send us to seer school first they sent us to seer school i can't remember what what happened but the other guys i think the other four or five guys they all went to the same seer class and then they had flown over before me and i went like two weeks after them i went to seer school by myself and then and then I flew over by myself. So that was kind of wild, flying over to a war zone by yourself, you know, no guns. You, you don't know what – you have no context for what that's going to look like. And so uh, – but flew over there, joined up with uh, Bravo Platoon at SEAL Team 3. And uh, the OIC was a guy named Rourke, Rourke Denver. Okay. And, uh, and then, you know, joined that group. And it was cool because they they put us through a little bit of like some fam courses, like making sure that we knew what we were doing. And then they they started bringing us out on ops. Like they wow. they they let us turret gun, they let us carry you know the forty eight, the forty six. Um, what year was this? So this would have been two thousand six. So it was hot. So right yeah right as you were getting out, like I was you know getting in. And, um, so I, I was in Habania at the time and, uh, it was a, it was a really good experience. And by the, you know, by the end we were, were they were working us into the rotation and just trying to make sure that we were, you know, because when we, when we went through an SQT, they didn't have, and I'm sure they didn't have for you either, but we didn't have night vision. We didn't have lasers. So all of that stuff we had to, you know, um, kind of learn on the job but yeah it was I mean I felt lucky because we knew that we were the only guys in our class that were getting into the fight that quickly damn so you went straight from Bud's SQT to SEAL Team 3 and roughly about two weeks later you're on the ground in Iraq so it probably would have been more like a month a month month and a half probably on the ground but still real time real quick damn were you nervous? Oh yeah, yeah. I I remember because my wife had moved out with me, and she. I remember one weekend, like or right before I left, like she was, you know, she was pretty, pretty upset with me because I I just wasn't present, and my mind was just like I knew what was in front of me. I knew I'd never been to into a, a war zone like that before. I knew I didn't know in really any of the guys that were already on the ground working together in that platoon. Um, and I knew I was flying over by, you know, by myself and it was just like, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot. And that's where my headspace was. And so, yeah, there was definitely a, you know, a lot of anxiety there. Yeah, but <clears throat> I mean, was it literally just you on a C-17 and a bunch of... No. So, um... Some of my flights were civilian flights going over and they oh, okay. had me dress, you know, they had me dress as a civilian going over. Um, 
and I can't even remember all the because you have to take multiple flights. But I remember I just remember the the final flight, the final flight in calling somebody. Um, I was given a phone number, called this phone number, and uh, you know somebody came and picked me up at the airport and drove me to where I was going to be. And you know it was it was interesting because. Then I showed up and they were like, hey, go talk to uh, GM1 Pierce. And uh, did you, you probably never knew Dave Pierce, man, but he's probably the raddest ar- armor to ever live. Really? Yeah, ginger dude. Like I show up, they're like, yeah, go talk to GM1 Pierce you know, about getting a weapon. And so I find who this guy is. I'm like, hey, uh, GM1, I was told I could come uh, get a weapon from you. Where can I get one? And he's like, at the getting store. Like he was just a total smart ass right off the bat. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he, you know, just had this straight face, but you know, you came you came to appreciate this guy and just love him. He's one of my best friends now, but um, you know, it was just like, come on, bro, can I get a gun? You know, <laughs> quit giving me a hard time. Just give me a gun, dude. But what kind of stuff are you guys doing? Um the platoon was doing a lot of uh, sniper overwatches and a lot of DAs. And so uh, occasionally we'd get thrown in on some of that. And we were just doing a lot of turret gunning. And as a new guy, obviously all the collateral duties, make sure that the uh, you know, make sure that the trucks are gassed up, they're clean, uh, make sure that the he- heavy weapons or the crew serve weapons are clean. We did, we did a lot of that. We did some FID as well. Um, you know, it was our job to also, when, when the partner force, um, which I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was just some Habania or some, some Iraqi army unit that we were partnering with, when they would come over, they would usually come over a couple hours before the ops. And uh, I remember, I remember... You know, it was our job to watch them and make sure that they didn't get into anything or go anywhere they weren't supposed to go. And it was funny because we had this little makeshift movie theater, I remember. And, uh, you know, we would we were told, you guys can let them have one snack. And then, you know, you just put on a movie for them. And uh, I remember one of my buddies, Nate, one day he put on um, the movie Team America. And I mean, just like, I was just like, oh my God, we're going to get in so much trouble for this. But, but it was pretty, it was pretty funny just watching these guys watch Team America, you know? And, uh, so we, we would do a lot of that. We would do a lot of the collateral duties and, uh, you know, every once in a while we got to get in on a pretty cool op. What were you guys hitting? Were they, what kind of targets? You know, there was, um, a lot of, uh. A lot of guys making, you know, V-bids, IEDs, you know, that type, yeah, that type of stuff. Um, a lot of, a lot of residents, you know, re- resident homes, just stuff, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, for, for me, it, I wasn't really, as a, as a new guy that came over three months into deployment, I wasn't involved in, you know, the targeting or the intel side of things at all. It was just like... I was on a need-to-know basis. Yeah, go hit this house. Yeah. 
Were you guys getting in a lot of engagements? Or was it a lot of dry holes, mixtures? Um, yeah, I would say, I would say it was, uh, it was, I would say it was more like a mixed bag. Yeah. You know, definitely, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, a hairy event here or there, but for the most part, it was just, you know, overwhelming, you know, overwhelming our target or the enemy before they could you know, do anything. And you, you know how that goes. I mean, when you roll in to somebody's neighborhood with 15 or 20 team guys, and I mean, can you, can you imagine being on the other side of that? Hmm. It's like you have two choices. You surrender or you're dead. That's it. You know, I mean, you might, you might, if you're good, you might get one or two of us, but you're not gonna you're not gonna survive that. Yeah. You're just not. And I think you see real quick that most people make make the choice of survival. Yeah. Walk us through your first op. Like your first real world op. What were you carrying? What were you feeling? What was the anxiety like? My first real world op, I was in a turret. Really? Yep. I was I was on a fifty cal. And it was interesting because have nothing to compare it to. You don't know you don't know what that's gonna be like. You don't know if it the moment you leave the base, people are gonna be shooting at you. Um and like I remember, you know, one of the things I noticed was how they would use like uh telephone lines to try you know down telephone lines to kind of restrict access. And I remember spotting at night, you know, down telephone, down telephone lines and, uh, guys being like, Hey, make sure you make sure you duck back in. Um, and just, you know, holding security for guys while they, while they went and did their mission. But, um, yeah, I had a, we had a 50 cal. I think I had my M4 in the, uh, in the turret with me a SIG 226 on my side. And I think my M4 had a Hipley laser on it. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's it's like school. the, they're big, basically a big infrared spotlight yeah. with the cross, with the crosshair in the middle of it. And so, you know, it was just pretty wild. That was, you know, for, for me anyway, pretty, pretty mundane op overall, but just being, you know, a month and a half out of, out yeah. of buds. It was pretty cool. What do you think your biggest fear was heading out the door for that? Just failing, letting the guys failing. down. Right. I think they, they had shown so much trust in us to even bring us out on ops without, cause for the viewers and the listeners out there, most of the time you'll go through a year and a half workup before you'll ever go on a deployment. So just the fact that they trusted us to, you know, go on these ops with them and watch their back was uh, a big deal. And I definitely didn't want to let them down. Man, it's cool that you said that, uh, you know, I was expecting getting shot, getting blown up. Your biggest fear was letting the team down. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't mean that I didn't have those other fears too, because I did, I knew going in that, that the, the biggest risk was to get blown up with an IED. 
Yeah. And, you know, some would argue that, especially when you're turret gunning, you're, you're pretty much the most, the most, uh, vulnerable person. Cause half your body's sticking out of the vehicle. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I'm just grateful that, you know, I got to come home to my family and my kids and, but there's, there's a flip side to that too. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, that others didn't. And I think that that's been one of the things I think I've struggled with the most is just some of my buddies that didn't come home and, you know, what you, 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 you ask why me, why did I get to come home and, you know, or, or, and I, it's not, it's maybe a little narcissistic, but even sometimes you let yourself go there and, well, if I was there, would it have changed anything, you know? Yeah. Did you guys lose anybody on that deployment? Um, SEAL Team 3 did, yeah. Our platoon did not. But uh, Task Unit 2, Bruiser, probably, a, I don't know, maybe a month after I was there, Mark Lee was killed. He was the first SEAL killed in Iraq, and he was killed down in Ramadi, which was like 30 miles from us. And then, so we had worked that night as well. And I remember coming back and I don't remember if I was on the op or if I, if I stayed back, but I just remembered we just hot washed the trucks, brought them back, got them ready. Cause by that point we knew that, um, one of our guys had been killed right down the road. And so we just, you know, regassed up the trucks, got them cleaned. And then we convoyed down to MSR Michigan to Ramadi um, for the uh, memorial service. We, we held like a little memorial service there. And um, yeah, that, you know, I remember um, kind of feeling like a fish out of water because I'd never met Mark. And um, he was a, he was a new guy like me with, that was his first deployment. Um, but I remember wanting to show respect, you know, to the, to the older guys and to his brothers who knew him. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crummy because not long after, I think it was um, Ryan Job was shot. I think in that same, I believe in that same uh, engagement, and he was shot in the face. And um, and both of those were new guys. And so, as a new guy, you're thinking to yourself, "Well, is it because they're not wired tight? Is it because they're not doing, you know, what? Wh why is it new guys that keep getting hit?" And so you're you're running the math in your head and it wasn't but maybe another month and a half later that Mikey Mansoor in that same deployment was killed as well another new guy and so I just remember you know thinking hey you know the odds are that it it's going to be you know if if somebody gets killed in this unit it's for whatever reason, it's going to be one of us. Yeah. But, um, 
and I know that that's silly, but you you do start you do start picking up on the trend, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it makes it real really quick when guys at the team, you know, are dying. Yeah. So you wrapped up that deployment. Yeah. Actually, you know what? If if you're willing to talk about it, what was that memorial like? Because I've heard of guys having Viking funerals out there on, you know, in country. And, and if you don't, then that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I just remember... I can't... I can... All I can remember was... All I can remember was a, an anxiety level because guys were pissed. Yeah. Guys were furious. And I'm like this new guy, peon, who just, you know, wants to show respect and not, you know, make anything about make anything about me and just like head down, you know, um I remember like I, I think I walked up to the casket or something, and uh, I can't. We were supposed to do. We were supposed to do something, but I can't remember if we were supposed to salute it or or, or what we were supposed to do. But um, some somebody came up to me afterwards and had you know said something like I didn't show enough respect or something like that, and I was like, uh, well, man, I apologize, dude. You know, and. Um, but it was it was one of those it was one of those moments I think where guys are guys are pissed off they're looking to take it out on somebody and when you're a new guy in the team like you are you are a prime target um, but I, I I do remember they were playing music in the background and you know one of the uh, one of the songs they played was Crazy Game of Poker by OAR and uh, I remember that because it was one of my favorite songs. Um, but, you know, I just, you know, I just felt, I felt awful for Mark and his family. I knew that he was married at yeah. the time. Um, and I felt awful for the, the other dudes that just lost their brother. And I felt awful that I'd never got a chance to meet him just because, you know, I'd heard so many good things about him. One of the cool, one of the coolest things, cause I've got a chance to, uh, be, become pretty close with Mark's mom, Debbie. Oh, really? Yeah, Mama Lee. She's an amazing woman, and uh, she still does a lot today for the community. Um, and uh, one of the coolest things that I learned about Mark was that he would carry the 48 without a sling. And if you've ever carried a Mark 48 machine gun for longer than five minutes, you'll realize really quick that you want a sling on that thing. Yeah. Or to put the carrying handle like in your carabiner. On, on your kit, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. Like he was just a beast. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that made me respect him a lot. He was my uh, head mate in Buds when I showed up for a was while. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. He was really humble, uh, cool guy to be around. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. But, so you wrapped up that deployment, you come home, back with a wife. Yeah. How's that going? Uh, it was, um, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Um, and, and, and the 
the biggest, I think one of the biggest reasons it wasn't good was because of immaturity, uh, you know, on both of our parts. But um, we also, we had also just had, it's like pretty close after I got back, I got put into Chris Kyle's platoon immediately. And then during, um, during ULT, I think it was, we had our first kid. And so not only did I have Chris Kyle as my LPO, who loved to just hammer new guys, like he, like he loved it. Um, and so I had that going on at work every day. And then I'd come home and I had a newborn in, you know, in my bedroom at night. And so you combine that with immaturity and two people that are trying to figure out how to be married and, and live together. Um, you know, it was just it, on top of, you know, I would say some, you know, extra stress that comes with that job. And, you know, it was a combination for, I don't know what a good word is, maybe dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it was, I'm not saying it was always bad or anything like that, but one of the things, Sean, that I want to do for the rest of my life, man, is I just want to try and bless other people and help other people, man, because when you front and when, when it's always a facade and you're always trying to put on this, like, oh, everything's hunky-dory all the time, you're not helping anybody. Yeah. And most of the people out there watching this right now, that's not their reality. They're struggling with something, you know, and it, it took, it took me and my wife a while, like, um, probably took 10 years before I felt like we had a good marriage. Wow. And I didn't know that that would ever even, I didn't know, I was at the point where I didn't know that that would, it was even possible. Like it was even in the cards for me. You know how you have a certain experience for even a year or two and you're like, oh, this is probably what it's going to be like you know there's probably no changing this well when when you've been at something for 10 years and it's like at best good most often it's mediocre you're like this is the ceiling i mean this is this is the reality and so um yeah i mean at that point it was it was tough because there were just a lot of new brand new dad I didn't even want to be a dad while I was in the in the military because I didn't want to be um, I don't want to be away from my kids and I didn't want to be an absentee father. So now we've got a newborn sleeping in our room every night, go in dealing with one of the biggest hazers known to man. <laughs> he like, you know, and it was just like talk about walking around it on eggshells at work. I mean, I don't know what your platoons were like. I don't know what your new guys, your new guy experience was like. But when you know, I had I had buddies that we graduated were that were a couple doors down in a different platoon, and they're like, "Nah, man, that's chill. You know, we don't get messed with much, and not us, bro." Really? <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. It was like we were always like watching each other's back. I mean, it was always <laughs> like <laughs> it's almost like you resume swim buddy rules. Like, hey. Don't, don't go in there without a swim buddy, you know, <laughs> could get out of control quick, but you know, looking back on it, man, it's, it was, it was good in ways just because what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. You know? and, 
What was he doing? I mean, it was just like, um, you know, it was it was like uh, there were a lot of a lot of rules, right? A lot of rules. Like I remember one of the rules was, you know, you have a crazy you have a crazy week, you know, training or whatever, and then you get a go home, spend time with your family on the weekends, right? But that not in my platoon, bro. Like you had to be. The rule was you were supposed to be at any bar in San Diego within 20 minutes, ready to buy buy a beer, get choked out, and clean up puke out of the the you know the 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 uh, restroom. Like I remember, and having like if, it didn't matter if you and your wife had like a date night and you guys needed some time, you know, some time. <laughs> date night? No. Get your ass down here. Be at be at Danny's in 15 minutes. And it was oh, just man. like, it was just like, um, thankfully, because I had a newborn at home and Chris like was big on family, he let me off the hook more than the other guys. But because I was the only guy, I, there was only like, I think two or three guys in that platoon that even had kids. So Chris did like, you know, he did give me a little leeway because I had, a, I had a kid. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> did you go to sniper school that platoon? Well, this gives me another great opportunity to talk about failure. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so, I, uh, I, I, tr- I did go to sniper school, but I didn't make it through sniper school. I made it through pick and then scout, and I didn't qualify um, with the uh, with with the M4. Oh, okay. And so you have to qualify um, expert to to move on. And I didn't qualify, so that was that was hard because I came back and basically, you know, I had to tell Chris that, you know, that I'd let him down wow. because he, he, I was the only one that he sent. Oh man! Yeah, I mean, you can imagine. Yeah, um, especially of all the snipers out there to have to tell that to. Yeah, yeah. Chris Kyle. Yeah. Damn. It it was rough, man. Um, and I mean, you want to talk about like feeling like complete turd yeah i did and thankfully i got the opportunity um during the next workup to uh go back through and they didn't make me they didn't make me go through pick and scout they just let me go to sniper sniper school once i qualified no nice for those listening sniper school i don't know if it still is but it used to be broken up into three portions and so yeah pick was learning a lot of taking pictures, sending them over a secure net over SATCOM, radios, all that kind of stuff. Right. Scout is all stalking. So basically learn all the reconnaissance type stuff, building high sites, all that kind of stuff before you actually get to the shooting portion. Right. Correct? Yep. Cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, man, it's it's crazy. Like when you look at, just like scout, for example, like stalking, you know, the second, when I was going through sniper school this, the second time, um, and I actually got into the third portion, which is actually the sniper portion where you, all you do is shoot, but you, you still have to do some stocks and then some live fire, um, some live fire shots, um, in the midst of it, it's, it's wild when you just look at what you have to do 
for for the audience out there, I'll give you like an idea of like what a. I remember out in Atterbury, Indiana, which is where we do our sniper portion. They had this like this grass stock, and it's a thousand yards, and so you don't have, you didn't really have. I mean, it, you, when you, when you show up, when you show up, like they drop you off on the edge of this field, and then you have to, you the the instructors will be a thousand yards away where the targets are, and so most of it is just grass, and it's like you know probably about probably about that high and there's a there's a tree here or there but most of it's just grass and so you'll spend and you had to get within i think it was like 300 yards of your target and you don't have a range finder so the only thing you can use to range is your the the reticle in your scope your night force scope which is what we had at the time and so what you would do is you'd basically spend three hours crawling in in the grass so that they couldn't see you and you would have a drag bag, so you'd have your your gun um, tied to your body, tied to tethered to your body, and you would drag you would drag your gun so that it wouldn't create like you wouldn't wear it as a backpack to create like a bigger profile, so that they could see you. So you have like forty guys on this grass stock that you know you all take off at the same time. You you know you've got four hours. You've got to get within build an FFP or like a final firing position within like. 300 yards of the target you've got a bunch of instructors at the other end all of them have spotting scopes and they know where you're starting from they know what time you're starting and so all they're doing is just burning the the field like looking at the field and then behind you you have what they call walkers which are other instructors and so how it works is you everybody takes off and guys are like you know looking at the field is there any dead space are there any like high points of ground that I can use to stay behind so that these guys over here can't see me and everybody takes off and you hope you pick a good you hope you pick a good route to to start going down because sometimes it's hard to tell like what the terrain's going to look like five six hundred yards down the road um and so um you take off and if they if you hear a whistle blows everybody has to freeze right where you're at because the instructor had, the instructors down on the spotting scope have seen something. And so what they'll do is, is they'll be like, okay. Um, and they, so what they'll do is they'll put the spotting scope on one of the walkers, one of the instructors that's just walking the field with, with the snipers that are moving through. And it'll be like, okay, say you're a walker. All right, Sean, uh, I got a, I got a, I got a student. He take, take 20 paces forward instructor Sean. And so you'll take 20 paces forward and then they'll be like, okay, come right five paces. And then you'll come right five pace, paces. They'll be like, okay, back two paces left. And then you'll take two paces left. Okay. And then he'll be like, all right, there's a sniper at your feet. I can't, I know, I know that's where I saw him duck in. And if, if you, if there is a student, you know, right, right at his feet within a couple feet of him, that's one hit. Right. And so you can only get, I think you can only get three hits per stock, per stock. And you can, you can't get, you can't get the same, you can't get the same hit twice. If you get the same hit, like if, and it gets a lot harder than that because even, even that's, even that's difficult. But then once, once, you know, um, you get within 300 yards, that's where, or within, within that range where you have to build a final firing position and take a shot this is when it gets really hard 
because now you start building a final firing position. And so you've got clippers on you, you know, you're, you're vegging up, you're taking veg that matches the environment that you're in and you're stuffing it in your ghillie suit. You're preparing your hat and you're doing it all like really slowly so that the, cause these guys movement will pick up quicker than anything else in their spotting scope. And so you find, try and find a good fi uh, bush or something to get into, or even just some tall grass, and you're moving really slowly um, to try and make sure that there's not, you know, vet, that there's enough veg in between you and them to where once they start burning the area, they won't be able to see you. But once you say, okay, I feel good about my spot, I've got enough related veg in my in my ghillie suit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to take my shot. I don't think that they're going to be able to see me once they start burning this area. What they'll do is they'll, you, you'll be like, I'll, say I'm the sniper. I'll be like, all right, shooter ready. And I'll, I'll call out because I'm still 300 yards from them, right? So they can't hear really my voice very well. So I'll be like, hey, instructor Sean, I'm, I'm ready to take my shot. And they'll be like, okay. So you'll come up over the radio and you'll be like, all right, I've got a shooter that's ready and you'll make sure that you're not close to me yet. You'll make sure that you're 10 yards from me. And then you'll say, okay, I got a, a shooter that's ready. And so what the instructors start doing is they start, they know that there's a shooter 10 yards from you. He can't be further than 10 yards. And so they start burning the bushes, the grass. Can they see anything? Can they see a glint off of your scope? Can they see like a piece of your shoulder that you didn't veg up or whatever? Shit. And they'll be like, okay, you know, um, move to five five yards and then instructor sean you know will move five yards from the shooter and now they'll start burning five yards around the instructor oh. it gets worse and if they hit you if they see you at any point that's a you know that's one hit in your ffp for you know being visible to them so if you get one more you're done so then they'll be like okay move within two feet the so the instructor moves like to where he's like right on top damn near right on top of you and as you're laying there behind your gun you're like of course they're gonna see me i mean you're damn near standing right on top yeah. right on top of me but that's how it works and you have to be so well concealed that even when he's two feet from you they can't see anything and it's not done yet because then you still have to take your shot and it either whether it's a live fire shot or it's a blank shot you you have to set things up because when your gun when when you shoot a shot, it expels a lot of the gases, right? So mm -hmm. if they see if they see grass move, right, or anything, that's a hit. And so and and it's still not over because you have to be within 10% of what you range that shot at. So you have to do you have there's no there's no range finder. You're using the reticle in your scope to um, range how far they are from you and if you're if you're um, more than 10% off, you you fail, and so it's a, yeah, and that's just this that's just the that's just the stocking some of the stocking portion. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah, it's it's legit, man. It it really is because like, especially once you've been like, not all the stocks were grass stocks where you had to crawl the entire time, but I remember one of them was a you know no kidding at. Uh, a, a grass stock that was a thousand yards and I, you you crawled you had to crawl for like three hours just to get up i mean that crawl for crawl for 
30 minutes and let me know how you're feeling. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's, it's, it's impressive what, what the, uh, the guys have to go through to get through. Damn. So if you get three hits on the same stop, you're done. Yeah. You failed the stop. Cause it seems like, I mean, whatever, you know I mean? They're producing the best snipers out there, but it seems like if you get caught right off the bat, I mean, and you're crawling, yeah. I mean, you're not going to, they could just track you yeah. the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's. So if they don't want you there, you're, you're gone. Yeah, I, I, I think there's some, you know, I noticed that um, hunters did really well. Really? Yeah. Guys that were just used to, you know, always trying to outsmart the game and, you know, be camouflaged. Um really well I, I noticed that they just did guys that really spent a lot of time out in the field hunting seemed to do really well at sniper school which which was pretty cool to see yeah makes a lot of sense yeah how many guys made it through that you know we had a pretty pretty high attrition rate we actually lost i want to say five or six guys not be we lost a couple because of sniper school, but we lost probably four or five guys because of a van fight. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Like they, some guys went to, uh, I think Bloomington, Indiana, where um, IU is and got into a van fight coming back and just destroyed the van. And they, they the cadre wasn't having it, even though the guys were like, we'll pay for it out of our own pocket. And so a bunch of dudes got shipped home. Damn. Typical team guy shit. Yep. Did you guys have Murph there teaching? Nope. Murphy? No. I was curious. So you went back to the team. I guess if you want, we can breeze over that second deployment. You went back to the team as a sniper. Yep. And then then what? Um, Yeah. And then... uh, it was unfortunate in ways because by that point, um, we were no longer allowed to even carry our weapons on ops. Yeah. What? So, yeah. So, um, it was 2010 and we were turning over. This was my third and final deployment in the teams. We were turning over, um, with the Iraqi, um, with the Iraqis. And they, you know, they wanted to de-escalate everything. Yeah. And so snipers don't typically do that. And so we weren't, we we weren't doing sniper overwatches anymore. The majority of what we were doing was DAs, a bunch of FID. Um, and one of the biggest missions we had on that deployment was to try and find um, a guy that was MIA or... KIA, and they hadn't they hadn't found his body yet, and it was uh, Major Troy Gilbert. Oh, he was an F sixteen pilot, and uh, he was uh, shot down over Fallujah. He was bailing out some uh, SF guys that were in a pretty pretty bad tick. I think back in 06, I think that that's when when this whole thing went down, and he got his F sixteen got shot down, and they they got to the crash sh- crash site and there was enough 
you know, like blood in the cockpit that they thought there was a good chance that he was dead, but they weren't sure, but his body wasn't there. And so, um, they embedded a guy with us and I can't remember what, who exactly he worked for. He was a former SF guy, but his job was to help try and bring any KIA, MIA guys home. And so we spent a good deal of that deployment looking for the major. Did you get him? We didn't. They did get him. Uh, a, I think it was a group of team guys, maybe two years later, finally, finally brought his remains home. But it was pretty cool. I got, I've got to meet his wife, um, Ginger, and their kids. Um, dude, it was crazy, man. He had like five kids and, uh, he had two twin baby girls that were like less than one when he was killed. Oh man. And they are the kindest, sweetest people you've ever met. And I felt, I, I, I remember I was at an event in Scottsdale. It was like a golf tournament, like raffle or something. And, uh, I think we, we donated some products to be raffled off and they asked if I wanted to come up and be a part of it. And I didn't. I didn't really know who was going to be there, but when they were like, oh, um, Gold Star, um, this Gold Star family is going to be here. And uh, I, you know, did the math, put the name together, and I was like, oh, man, that's uh, a part of me wanted to tell her, you know, tell her, hey, there, there really are guys overseas looking for your husband. Um, but I, I, I didn't felt a little torn. I didn't want to yeah. bring up any, you know, like upset or anything like that. But I, I went and it, I decided to go introduce myself and I introduced myself to her and, uh, I told her, Hey, I, there are guys looking for your husband. I know we were, we were looking for your husband and she was just the sweetest lady I'd ever met. And she was, I could tell she was glad to hear that. Cause I know they get told that by a lot of people like a lot of high ranking folks, but to actually have somebody that was on the ground, you know, um, watching, you know, sledgehammers and pickaxes going to concrete slabs in case he was buried underneath it. You know, I think you could tell it meant, yeah. it meant something to him. Damn. How, where did they find him? Do you know? It was like in the same area that we were, it was in the, within the same area that we were working in. So it was, kind of you know unfortunate but i'm just glad that they found him yeah i did feel bad for the family though because i think that they had like three you know three funerals for him and uh i'm just glad they finally got to you know they finally got to uh actually bring his remains home you know was he yeah he was dead yeah i mean was he did they fucking mutilate him or anything? You know, I didn't. They I didn't were doing hear a lot of that. I didn't. I didn't hear about that, and I'm kind of glad I, I didn't hear about it because I remember when they were giving us the brief on, "Hey, you guys are going to be looking for the major." Um, I remember they showed us pictures of his kids and and his family, and that was something that always got to me. Like, you know, even when even was even when Chris was killed, like I remember being fine walk you know through the memorial service but he, as soon as i saw pictures of his kids man because they don't get to choose yeah 
you know, they now they go through life without a dad, and that just hurts, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that always got me at the at the memorial services when you see a five year old get a folded up flag handed to him. Yeah. And the bagpipes playing. But uh, let's take a break. Yeah. Let's do it. All right, Eli, we're back from the break. We had a little discussion, and um, I was going to go right into kind of your transition and, and reintegrating in, into civilian life, but you brought up a specific story, so let's let's cover that real quick. It was on your first deployment? Yeah, yeah. You know, peop sometimes people will ask me, like, um, did you get, were, were you ever scared? And the answer is, yeah, I was. And um, one of the one of the times that was the scariest for me was um, actually on a sniper overwatch on my first deployment, where we started getting mortared. And um, so to like kind of unpack unpack that, um, typically we would you know we'd we'd go in. At, at night and we would take a house that we thought would give us um, good sight lines for whatever we wanted to watch. And one one day we were watching, I think we were watching MSR Michigan for people planning V-bids, or not, not V-bids, I'm sorry, IEDs. And we, we also knew that some partner forces were gonna be patrolling through that area. So we wanted to make sure that if they came under contact that we could support them. And so I remember we came in, you know, in the middle of the night, um, there was a family in the house and when, when there is, and there often was, you, you can do a couple things. You can either, you can either, uh, make them stay in the house or you can let them, you can let them go. And either way, um, especially at that point in the war, that was in 2006, um, the locals kind of knew what was going on, whether you let them out or you kept them because they would kind of do check in on people because yeah. they knew that type of stuff happened. Like if, if the Ryan family didn't come out, send their kids to school by, you know, 0800, they knew there was a good chance the Americans were in their house. Right. Um, or if you let them go, they're probably going to tell people, Hey, there's Americans in our house. And so I remember, um, going in there. And then, you know, taking this house that we thought had good sight lines and then um, getting all getting all set up and ready to go for the next day. And as a new guy, you know, my job wasn't to be on a sniper rifle. My job was to hold security. And so I remember my job was to watch the west side of the house. And so they, you know, I found a good spot by, by a window a little bit back into the room where I could watch, you know, pretty much everything that was going down on the left side of the house. And, you know, I took off a lot of my gear, but just had like my frags like laid out, laid out by, you know, by the window. And I had a Mark 48 machine gun. And, um, you know, as the sun came up and most of our snipers, we probably had four or five snipers on the op. Most of them were facing north watching this MSR Michigan, you know, road that was out in front of the house. And uh, I remember, I don't, I don't know, maybe 
maybe, I don't know, maybe an hour or so after daylight, one of our snipers took a shot, killed, you know, killed a bad guy. And then probably, you know, probably three or more, three or four more times our snipers started, just started engaging people. And I remember one of them, you know, one of them shot this, uh, this guy in this car, um, uh, on my side of the house where I could see it. Like he, it was, uh, shot him through a car windshield, like the front, the front windshield. I remember looking out the side of my window and sure enough, this right in the driver's side, you know, front of this windshield had a big old spider, spider vein bullet hole in it. And this guy was dead. One of our snipers shot him through the head. And um, it was, it was in, it was, it got pretty eerie really quick because um, he, they, the sniper shot him right in front of a school. Oh. And so within, and I was, so I was watching this, everybody's amped up, shots are being fired, we're starting to kill bad guys. And I remember um, probably 10 minutes later, a bunch of women and children, first a couple women or a couple kids, I think came out, saw it. And then the screaming started, right? These women and children are just screaming and crying. And then I remember them pulling his dead body out of the car and pulling him into the school and my spidey senses were through the started going through the roof. It just made so like my spidey senses knew. Yeah. They were like there's no there's no better way to start a fight than to rile up women and children because as they get riled up, emotions start getting riled up and then people want revenge and I just knew it. I knew we were going to get hit. And so sure enough, like 45 minutes later, you know, the small arms start, you know, first it's indirect. You can just hear it cracking over, you know, cracking over the heads. And, uh, and then it starts getting more direct and you can start to hear it, you know, you know, um, hitting the building a little bit. And, uh, you know, all, everybody's on full alert, just ready to rock and roll. And I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, the first mortar, you hear it pop up in the air. And, uh, there was a guy named Mike, um, one of our snipers who was on the same level as me. We weren't on the roof. We were on the, the level be below the roof. And he had, he had propped his Mark 11 up on a desk and that's what he was using as his platform. And Mark 11 is a sniper rifle for those. Mark 11 know. is like a, it's like a sniperized AR 10 or a 7.62 magazine fed sniper rifle it, with, with a suppressor on it. And, uh, I remember Mike, Mike was a badass. Like Mike was, you know, tough as nails, but definitely the type of guy you don't want to mess with. And I remember as soon as that first, um, you know, mortar round popped up in the air, I heard Mike's voice change and he yells over to me. He's like, take cover. And, uh, and I was like, if Mike's telling me that, and I can hear it in his voice. This is serious. And so first, first more round comes up, you know, hear it, ex hear it explode, not a direct hit. And then they just start popping these mortar rounds up in the air. And I'll tell you, Sean, I don't think I've ever been as scared in my life because it is like the movies, man. You know, if you, you can hear those things whistling through the air. 
And the difference, like when you get shot at, it happens so fast, you don't really have time to be scared, right? But with the, with when mortar rounds incoming, like, and you can hear those things whistling for five, six seconds in the air, the whole time you're thinking, is this it? I wonder if, if this, you know, if this is a direct hit, this hits, hits this house, we're done. And, uh, thankfully, um, these guys really didn't want it. I could tell they didn't want an extended fight. They kind of wanted to, to just, um, see if they could hit us with the mortar rounds and then, and then get the hell out of here. So we didn't pinpoint their location and kill them. But, um, cause I think they only launched like four or five mortar rounds. One of them, I do remember one of them though hit on the west side of the house, probably like 60 yards from my window and frag, you know, flew up and through the window. And that, you know, that was, you know, pretty, pretty close, but I'm just glad that, you know, they, they were off on their, uh, on their yeah. shots. But then, um, our AOIC at the time called in Artie and, uh, from, uh, I think from, from Havania, and that was pretty cool to hear the big guns start, you know, start going off in the distance. And then the tree line that we thought we were taking um, the mortars from, you know, started getting started getting rocked. And, and the fight, the fight was over at that point. But that's always that's a scary feeling, man. Not only not only hearing mortar rounds, you know, you know, whistle, whistle through the air and not knowing where they're going to hit and you're taking small arms fire, but. Like when you're a, when you're in a sniper overwatch or a situation like that, you're you're usually in one of the worst neighborhoods on planet Earth, and there's like ten to fifteen of you, and you're in somebody else's city, and you're constantly thinking how many how many bad guys can they muster to send at us? Yeah. And if you know, when you know that you're probably not going to get extracted till nightfall because nobody wants to risk the vehicles in in the daylight which, you know, we didn't always own. We usually own the night. You know, that we we could be in for it, you know, for a while. Yeah, it's that, it's like a feeling, I've been in a couple of similar situations and uh, it's like the feeling of helplessness. Mm. You, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, You can't figure out where it's coming from. If you can, like it's the tree line, you can't, yeah. there's no target to shoot. You're just gonna eat it and hope it stops soon. You yeah. know, hope you don't eat it and hope it stops soon. And there's, it's completely out of your control. Yeah. But yeah, damn. How did you guys get out of there? Uh, like I said, um, they, I think, I think on that op, we were gonna stay for a couple of days. But I think they decided to pull us. I think they pulled us that night, and as soon as it as soon as it got nightfall, um, we uh, we went to a rally point, and and uh, you know the our guys came in and picked us up. Yeah, but other team guys or yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. And when you say ten to fifteen guys, they're spread out in different OPs, right? Not on that one, we were all in the same. We were all in that one. We were all in the same house. But yeah, that does happen sometimes where you spread them out. But I want to say there were probably there were probably ten, twelve guys on that op, 
Okay. And then we had a, our partner force was downstairs holding holding security. Um, but yeah, it was uh, you know, it was an interesting you know definitely and that was probably it, it wasn't the closest call I've ever had, but it was the most scared I've ever been be, in, in combat just because the anticipation factor that come with mortars and you just being able to hear it for five, six seconds before it hits somewhere and you're wondering where it's going to hit that, you know, that. Yeah. What was the closest call? The closest call would be, would have been on my next, on my, on my next platoon, my third and final platoon. And we, uh, we got ambushed by three, three guys, at about 110 yards and and i was like laying in the street nowhere to go just watching tracer rounds just fly over us oh shit yeah it was it was pretty wild man um i uh i was point man that night and so i was leading us we had like a 600 600 yard patrol into the target house that we were going to hit. And we were going after a dude that was making V V bids and IEDs and just a really bad dude. And unfortunately it was the first night that we'd given our partner force, the eight digit grid coordinates of the target that we were going to hit. And sure enough, we got lit up, you know, that's been going on in warfare for a long time, you know, just partner forces playing both sides of the, you know, the, the, the fence. And, uh, it was, it was kind of uh, surreal just because the uh, there were I think two guys had an AK, two guys had AKs and then one guy had a um, it looked like an RPK, a belt fed heavy machine gun and he had he had belted together probably two two belts probably two hundred rounds of tracer, so you could just see every round, just like flying over your head and thank God they were shooting you know, maybe a foot or so high. And so none of us got hit. But when, when I went back that night and looked at it on the, uh, the, cause we had a pre we had a predator, we had two Apaches and then a C-130 overhead. And I watched the predator feed and we actually used some of the tools to like measure how far we were from them. And, uh, yeah, it was 110 yards, which Damn. is not, it, that's not far for those type of weapons at yeah. all. So Shit. that was definitely the my closest call. Well, let's talk about your transition. And um, so you came home, you did three combat deployments. Yep. Come home. Do you have two kids at this point? I had one kid at that point. The other one would come in about a year. How was that reintegrating? You know, um, it was still... Like I said, my marriage didn't get good until like ten years in, and uh, so it was still it was still pretty tough because I came home and probably two years after coming home, while I was on short duty, we started after having our second kid, we started our small small business bottle breacher, and so you bring the stress of running a small business together into a marriage that's not even you know, really good to begin with two small kids. And, you know, in in my case, somebody who was dealing with 
whatever mental issues I was dealing with, you know, but I had some pretty severe anger and rage issues at the time. And I think I was, I had some pretty legit survivor's guilt, um, and maybe some other stuff going on, but, um, you know, it was, I was just in survival mode because I knew, I knew at that point I was getting out and I was watching friends of mine get out and struggle to, to find something they could sink their teeth into, you know, not just some, find some job, but, um, you know, so that was, it, it was a very difficult time for us, but it was a, you know, I'm grateful because I'd learned so much in the teams about unconventional warfare. And I saw the application in business. And so just use that same drive, the same resiliency and tenacity and use the same type of tactics, unconventional tactics to try and build a business. And so it was a bittersweet time. Interesting. So how, how long after you separated from the teams did you start Bottle Breacher? I started it while I was in the teams. You started while you were in the teams? Yeah. How old were you when you left the teams? Let's see. Oh man, are you gonna make me do math? Yeah. <laughs> Thought you were gonna put me on the spot. Well, Let's see. where I'm going is you made your first million at 35 yeah, years old. Yeah, so um, I was probably the 30, 33 years old when I started it. So you made your first million in two years of being in business. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. And obviously a lot of it had to do with Shark Tank. We, um, and obviously it's not in business, it's not it's not what you make, it's what you keep, right? But mm-hmm. um, in year in year one at Bottle Breacher, uh, we were we did 150k, which just blew my mind. When I started this thing, I I wanted you know 50 you know or I'm sorry like 500 dollars a month. That was my goal for like supplemental income. I I wasn't even thinking about growing a company necessarily, just making some cool products and selling them for supplemental income. And so in year two, we really started ratcheting things up. And I think we were, we were going to hit about that. We were projecting about $900,000 to a million in our second year. And then um, that halfway through the year was when I pitched to go on Shark Tank. And we were doing about $80,000 a month out of that one car garage. Damn. Yeah. $80,000 a month. Yep. And we had... And it was a one-car garage, Sean. So it was a manufacturing facility in a one-car garage. Dude, we had four laser engravers in there. We had a polishing wheel in there. I had a little Honda EFI generator because my power, my house couldn't support all the all the drain from all the equipment. We had two laptop computers in there. Um, like we had shel- shelving for uh, you know our the outgoing order rack and then we my kayak was like still hanging in the ceiling like it was it was crazy (laughs) but it was wild i remember going to an open casting call for shark tank after i applied the i had applied online and not heard anything from them so i went to an open casting call which was like probably 10 minutes down the road from my house down the 163 and uh 
I remember I didn't even practice my pitch. I just walked, I, I had this cool cigar box. I laser engraved the Shark Tank logo on it and my logo, the Bottle Breacher logo. And um, I remember, uh, did you know Kevin Lace? You know Kevin? I had never met him. I know okay. who he is. I've never met him. So he uh, he worked with Clint Eastwood on the movie American Sniper. And Kevin was in my platoon um, from 06 to 08. And so Kevin was kind of tech, you know, like a technical advisor on the movie. And he reached out to me when he was, uh, when they were wrapping things up with the movie and asked me if I would make uh, bottle breachers for the cast and crew of the movie. So it was really cool. I got to make Clint Eastwood a bottle breacher, Bradley Cooper a bottle breacher, and just all all the guys, whatever names Kevin gave me. And so we did a really cool, like, limited edition uh, bottle breacher for those guys. And uh, <clears throat> Kevin did me a solid, and he got a, a picture with him and Clint Eastwood holding up his bottle breacher. Oh, that's And cool. so I took that picture, and I put it on the inside cover of the uh, cigar box. And so I... I went to an open casting call where only the first 500 people got guaranteed the opportunity to pitch. So, so I showed up like at one in the morning so that I could pitch these guys at like one in the afternoon the next day. And, uh, I got in front of this lady, her name was Mindy. And I, I, sh I opened the cigar box and it, it had the Clint Eastwood, you know, picture, picture with him holding his bottle breach. And then I had an assortment of the other, some of the other SKUs that we did, because I wanted her to see it wasn't just one thing. Like there were there were varieties that we could do, right? And it happened to be like Father's Day weekend, and so I laser engraved Happy Father's Day on some of them. And I was like, I was like, ma'am, would you believe it if I told you that I've sold eighty thousand dollars of this product out of a one car garage about fifteen miles from this location? And she's like, No, you haven't. I was like, so I pulled up my phone and I had my Etsy app on my phone and I started scrolling and I showed her, this is how much revenue that we've done. This is how many orders we've done. You know, this is how many messages we have. And then I showed her the product, you know, some of the, I showed her the variety of products because you only have like a minute to pitch to these guys and then it's, it's right, you know, they want you to keep it real short so they can get people yeah. out of there. And so... I said, do you have any, do you have any men like a dad or a brother in your life that would think that this was cool? And she's like, are you kidding me? My dad and my brothers would freak out over this thing. She happened to be from like Iowa or something. And like, just, you know, um, and, and, and I was like, well, I'm going to leave these with you. You, this is how much we've done in sales. This is the backstory. You know, I'm still an active duty seal. This is Clint Eastwood. Does he look happy with this thing? And she's like, yeah. And so they they told us when we did the open casting call, they were like, look, um, don't call us, we'll call you, right? And if you hear from us, it won't be for a couple weeks. That was on a Saturday. Monday morning at like 0830, I had an email in my inbox like, hey, we love the pitch, we love the product, you're moving on to the next round. Now you have a week to make a video. So we had to call a videographer, figure out like a script and how we were going to shoot this thing. And then, um, and we made a video and then we just started going down the shark tank pipeline process. Damn, that is cool. So yeah. you were in there before you even separated. Yeah, it was crazy. I, uh, I actually, when I, when I went to Sony picture studio to pitch that in the summer, 
of 14, um, I was still on terminal leave. So I had like a month left of terminal leave. And uh, so it was wild, man. It was wild. Like it, wait, no, 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 that's not right. I'm sorry. Sometimes the dates get mixed up, but so I separated, I separated in October of 14. We went on the show in like, I think like July or August of 14. I was on terminal leave at the time, but then when, um, I got out of the Navy, like one, the month before our episode aired. So it was, it was just like, boom, right from one thing to the, right from one thing to the next man and it was you know it's like um you know i talk i talk about my marriage because i i realize there's people out there that are struggling to you know figure it out and uh, that's why that's why i talk about it not because i'm proud of you know not you know not being a good husband or something like that but um so yeah we went from SEAL teams, two young kids, right into the kind of like the deep end entrepreneurship wise. And uh, we went, the, the day before Shark Tank, we made like 150 units on a good day. When I woke up the next morning, I had to make 60,000 units and answer like 20,000 emails. And as you know, for people out there that make something, you know, you don't just, you don't snap your fingers and that happens overnight. It takes a lot of innovation because what, and we say this in the teams, but what used to work yesterday, no, it's not going to work tomorrow. You have to innovate and figure something new out. And we did. Yeah. What, what is it that you think brought you and your wife together? Yeah. After struggling for so long, you know, it was, uh, it was 100%. Um, um, the catalyst was a Christian men's retreat that I went to. Really? Yeah, one hundred percent. And I know that that does that sounds um, like uh, something that guys like us would typically avoid, like the plague. But and I did for a while. My butt. I had a I had a good friend of mine who invited me to come to this Christian men's retreat. It was called Wild at Heart. And uh, he was also a Shark Tank business owner. He's like, Eli, you got to come check this thing out. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds pretty lame. I was like, what are we going to be doing? Like singing Kumbaya or doing trust falls or is somebody going to break out rattlesnakes or something like that? But no, man, it changed my life, man. It was it was, it was was awesome. and uh, And it just showed me how... I hadn't been stepping up. I hadn't been I hadn't been fighting for my wife. I'd been so busy fighting with her and and trying to be right it, that I hadn't fought for her and I hadn't fought for her heart. And it was so cool, man, because um they take you back they take you back into their story. And it's like 400 guys that show up there. It's like from all walks of life, every profession. I've, I've met other team guys there. I've met other rangers there. I've met doctors, all sorts of, all sorts of people, you know, all sorts of guys that are, you know, struggling with a lot of the same things. And uh, it was just really cool because um, like if you go back in, if you go back into the biblical story and the biblical narrative, 
we do have an enemy who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 says the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And it, it, that, that ties into the whole good-evil narrative. Do you believe in evil? Do you believe in good? What's the origin of it, right? And if you start asking some of those serious questions, um, the Bible has a lot of answers on that. Now, I get it. Not everybody believes the Bible. I get it. But um, it was just, it was, it was an eye-opening experience for me because it framed it up in a way that, like, it just made so much sense for me. It just made so much sense to me. And it, um, you know, one of the things they cover is why does God give you a masculine heart as a man? Because you were born into a world at war. And everything that you love, you're going to have to fight for it. And I realized that I, not only was I not fighting for my wife, um, but I spent a lot of my time fighting with her. And, you know, it just made me want to be a better husband. It made me want to be a better dad. I knew that, um, unlike in the SEAL teams, I was given certain weapons for certain jobs. I knew I didn't have a lot of the weaponry or the training to, to be either of those things, but I wanted to pursue it and I wanted to get better at it and I wanted to work at it. And so it kind of lit a fire in me to just come back and, you know, really work at those things and uh it, it changed everything and it took it took time but um you know and 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 there were other there were other issues too like I was deal like I told you I was dealing with a lot of anger and a lot of rage and uh, uh there's a there's a verse in the bible that says I stand I stand at the door and I knock and whoever answers the voice or whoever hears my Here's my voice and answers the door. I will come in and eat with him and eat and he with me. And I think just think it's so cool. That's something I love about the gospel is that when you when you read the gospel and you read how Christ, you know, and Jesus was here on earth, he didn't make anybody follow him. He didn't make anybody follow him. But he's he's knocking at he's knocking at the door. And I realized that there were certain rooms in my in in my heart that I didn't let anybody into because I needed them. That's how I protected myself. Yeah. Hey, that room. You're not. You're not allowed in there, Sean. I don't care if you were a team guy or not. I need that. That's how I protect myself. And if you get too close, watch out. And I realized, man, that 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 mentality was causing a lot of pain and a lot of hurt to those that are, were around me. It was good at times. It was like, there's a dichotomy there. I could use it to protect us, but the moment you the moment you cross that line, I'd use it against you. And, and I remember praying about it and I was like, Lord, will you tear this? Will you, will you just come into my heart and will you tear all of this out? All of this baggage, all of this anger, all of this rage, because I don't want it anymore. I'm tired of trying to carry it around. Yeah. And he did. And it worked. Yeah, it did. Good for you. Yeah, man. How are you and your wife now? Pretty awesome. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, we're still we're still two human beings, and we still both struggle with selfishness. And I think that there's a verse in Ephesians that says, as husbands, we're supposed to lay down our lives for our wife like Christ did for the church. 
And when you look at what Christ did for the church, he died for the, he died, he died for us. And I was, I was, I was dissecting that verse. I was looking at it. I was like, not only you're not willing to die for your wife, you're not even, you're not even willing to, you're not even willing to forgive her, or you're not even willing to put your pride down and love her and, and, and fight for her. And, and it was just like, it was so cool, man, because it just, um, it gave me, it gave me some, like some goals and, you know, some, a new perspective on how much I'd let her down. And, you know, and it was cool too, because, you know, it, there is good and evil in this world. Yeah. And I know you've seen it. I know some people have different answers for where that comes from. But I think I think it's spiritual, man. And so I think a lot of this stuff that that we deal with, I think all of it has spiritual connotation and spiritual foundation to it. And it's like just like we were talking about getting shot at. You can be getting shot at. You can hear those mortars whistling through the air, but if you don't know where they're coming from, good luck. You know? Yeah. Man, that's a... I'm, I'm really glad we covered all that stuff. Yeah. It's a real honor to be able to interview you. Well, I, and I again, man, out of respect, I know that that's not the answer. A lot of people don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, a lot of people would disagree um, with a lot of that stuff, and I'm... I'm cool with that, and I'm glad we live in a. I'm glad we live in a, a, a country in a place where you and I, or myself and whoever's listening or watching, can dis can disagree or not not believe the same thing, and we can openly talk about it. Yeah. Because I realize there are places around this world, if you talk like that, you you get killed. You yeah. could be thrown into prison. And to me, it, that that right there is evil. I want you to be able to have a different opinion than me. You know, I that's one thing I love about this country, man, is that like and I hope I hope it never changes, is that we can agree to disagree and we can have difference of opinions and we have the right, you know, to worship however we want to worship or not at all. But the way I see it, and we were talking about some other stuff at dinner last night, but if some if you if you've stumbled across something or found something that worked and you don't share that with others, you're not a team guy at all. Yeah. Very true. <clears throat> Let's start moving into politics. So right. this is the portion where we cut the show, and from now on, the rest of this is going to be over on Rumble. Why do we got to do that, dude? Well, you know, there's there's the YouTube-friendly version, and then there's right. the not-so-YouTube-friendly version. But so. I thought I just got done talking about freedom of speech. <laughs> Did I not just get done talking about that?
Finding suitable mental health medications can be a challenge. The GeneSight test may help. Did you know that genetics can play an important role in gaining insight on how a person may respond to various medications? Understanding this may help reduce medication trial and error. GeneSight is a genetic test that analyzes variations in DNA. It shows how genes may affect someone's metabolism or response to medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. Visit GeneSight.com for more information. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.